Last week, we dived into our brand new series that we're calling The Greatest Showman, and kind of in honor of Jennifer White, um, we subtitled it, Look What Jesus Did. And uh, it, we had a great time last week taking a look at John chapter 9 uh, as we watched a situation unfold on the Sabbath day where Jesus seeks out a blind man to heal him, to give him his sight. And in this situation, Jesus proves to everyone who's watching that he is, in fact, the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who gets to make the rules because he's the one who made the earth. And then he also shows us that he can use anything that he wants to use to accomplish his purpose. And so no matter how much dirt you've swept under the rug, or even if you got mud on your face, you big disgrace, giving glory to God all over the place. I don't know. Like... He will rock you if you will let him. And uh, so he, he, he shows us that he can use anything that he wants to use to accomplish his divine purpose. And um, ultimately, through everything that he does in John chapter 9, he points us back to the sender. From the pool that he sends the blind man to called sent to the actions and the words that he speaks to the instruction he gives to his disciples. What he wants us to see is that all of this is pointless unless it comes from God. And he uses everything to point back to his father, to point back to God and to say that is where glory belongs. To the sender, to the savior. In other words, God even has a design for your disability. And you have a standing appointment with the miracle worker. Isn't that good news this morning? In the passage we're going to dive into today in John chapter 4, if you want to begin to turn there, John chapter 4, um, much like in every other passage that we find the works of Jesus, we also find the ever-present working of the enemy against them or of the religious system against them or of the political climate against what Jesus is uh, accomplishing. So while we found the blind man um, attacked in his identity and in his intentions and in his intellect, Back in John chapter 9, he had a response to the religious leaders. He had a response to anyone who had a question for him that shut them up once and for all. If you remember, he looked at them and he said, listen, I don't know about all that. I don't understand how it happened. I don't know all the details. Try to get me. To, I can't figure it out because I'm, I'm human. But one thing I do know, I was blind and now I see. And they're like, well, how does that happen? Listen, I don't know all the details. I, I don't get it. Um, but, but listen, um, now I close my eyes and I open them and I can see. And in other words, a million dreams are keeping me awake because I walked through the door of what Jesus was doing. And now, like, it, it's absolutely amazing. I see what God is up to. And I can't explain all of it. But here's one thing I do know. Jesus did it. And he walked around letting everyone know, look what Jesus did. I didn't have any eyes and now I do. This is absolutely amazing. And so today in John chapter 4, we're going to journey with another uh, unsuspecting recipient of the grace of God. Someone who desperately wanted to be loved, but by all accounts, when it came to her, it just, it wasn't in the cards. It wasn't, uh, it, it if you would ask somebody in her city, it was clearly as if it was written in the stars. Um, this lady is not deserving of love. In fact, she's an outcast on, on so many different levels. And so if you're ready to jump into John chapter 4, say jump. The verse number 1 says, now. Somebody say now. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John... 
Although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. I want to jump back into verse number one and work our way through this passage. And we're going to journey a little bit more through the chapter if you want to keep your Bible open. But I want us to see some really interesting things as it pertains to our life, but as we watch what God is doing in this story. Um, Because you've heard me make reference to this before and you will many more times in the future. Uh, I'm not so much trying to bring the Bible to, to present day and try it to apply to your situation. What I'm trying to do is get you to go back to when these things were happening and understand what's taking place in the culture and in the society. If we read scripture through an American lens, we miss out on a lot. But if we read it through a Jewish lens, if we read it to the, in, the, in the context of the culture it was written to, uh, we're going to see so many things that we might otherwise miss. So jump back to verse number one. We read a word together. It's the first word of the verse. What was it? Therefore or now, depending on which version you're reading, thank you, Lincoln, for having your King James ready with us today. Therefore or now, this is an important word because, once again, the chapters and the verses are not inspired, just the words that are written there. And so when we see this word now or this word therefore, it's causing us to have to look back into John chapter 3 to see what's taking place that is leading Jesus to this moment. So he says, now Jesus is hearing all the things that the Pharisees are thinking about him because he's just come out of John chapter 3 where he's been preaching. He has been preaching in Jerusalem. He's making the Pharisees very, very upset because he's preaching repentance and they're baptizing people. Now, that might seem like an innocent thing to you, but understand that this baptism, um, that was a slap in the face of the current religious system that the Pharisees represented. Because baptism was really only something that Gentiles had to do through a long and rigorous process if they wanted to become a Jew. So the fact that Jesus and John the Baptist are baptizing Jews is really offensive to the Pharisees because those Jews who are being baptized are in essence saying, me and the Gentiles, we're all the same. We're renouncing our sin and we're claiming Jesus as Messiah. And the Pharisees, first of all, didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. And secondly, they believed that as the the Jewish nation, as the Israelites, that they were a tier above everybody else. And to say that you were on the same level as a Gentile was really to to say something bad about your own family or to say something bad about your own country. And so they're really frustrated with Jesus in this. In fact, in John chapter 3, one of the Pharisees named Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. It's the very first episode of Nick at Night. It was great. And he comes and he's asking Jesus, um, what do I need to do to, to gain eternal life? And Jesus looks at him and he uses a word. He says, you must be born again. Or depending on the translation you have, it may read, you have to be born again. Why? Because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. You must be born again. 
So Jesus has just finished preaching all of this. The Pharisees are really upset with him. And so now he's needing to make a journey um, up to Galilee. And so I want to journey down into verse 4. And I want you to see something uh, very, very interesting. In verse number 4 it says, And he what? And he what? He had to pass through Samaria. He had to pass through Samaria. You know what's interesting is that the Greek word that is used here for had to is the exact same word that Jesus uses back in John chapter 3 when he looks at Nicodemus and says, you have to, you must be born again. In the King James it reads, he must needs go through Samaria. he, He had to go. He just had to go. But when you think about this through a Jewish lens, he didn't really have to go through Samaria. That, I mean, that, that doesn't really make any sense. Yes, it was the shortest route to journey uh, from Jerusalem in the south up to Galilee in the north. It was the shortest route. Um, but if you were a good Jew, you, you wouldn't travel through Samaria if you could help it. Maybe you would take the, uh, the coastal route and, and you'd have the, the scenic view on your way around Samaria. Or maybe you might take the opposite way and cross over the Jordan River and you would cross up and, and then cross back over the Jordan River. Whichever way you go, you're going to be able to navigate all the way around Samaria. You don't have to worry about going through that town or seeing any of those people. So when I read verse 4 and it says, And he had to pass through Samaria. In this I see the sovereignty of God in that there's an unsuspecting woman here who has an appointment with the master. There's an unsuspecting person here. Little does she know that at the right time she's going to be in the right place and she's going to meet the right person. How does that happen? It only happens because we serve a God who knows everything and is in control of everything. And so Jesus says, I have a a, a constraint. I have an appointment. I have to go through Samaria. Imagine telling that to the disciples who were going, but Jesus, you've already offended all the Pharisees back in chapter 3. You have already made a bunch of people mad, and now you want to journey through the hood? That's what you want to do? Are you for real? You want to go be around those people, the Samaritans? Are, are you sure that's what you want to do? In fact, Jesus says, you know what? I, I, can, I can see... I can see y'all have a problem. And they're like, well, first of all, we're hungry. And he goes, fine, you can go get some food. That's good. But I have to go through Samaria. I've got an appointment that I have to keep. Um, watch this in verse 7. A-, a woman from Samaria came to draw water. Now, this is interesting. And if you've been in church uh, any amount of time, you've probably heard this passage preached through dozens and dozens of times. And my intention this morning is not to reveal some sort of hidden truth, like there's some secret gem in here that we're going to dig up. My intention this morning is that you see the relevance of this passage in your life, but that you see the righteous hand of God and how he operates even to this day. Back in verse 6, we we find that Jesus finds himself here at the well, Jacob's well, wearied as he was from his journey. Wearied as he was from his journey, he sits down at the well. In other words, we're revealing the humanity of Jesus in this moment, who has just taken this 20-some-odd mile hike, escaping the people who want to kill him, journeying through a place that everyone said he shouldn't be, and so he sets himself down beside the well, and, I mean, there. 
at the hottest point of the day. The sun is in the center of the sky. This hasn't been an easy day. He's, he's wearied. Listen, I, I want you to understand, Jesus does this on purpose because he doesn't want you to worry when you're wearied. He wants you to know that there'll be someone waiting at the well. Don't worry when you get tired. Don't worry when you're weary. God always has a purpose for that, and don't miss it. Just start looking for who it is that God wants you to minister to. Because when you find yourself wearied, it's always because God's putting you in the right place at the right time so that the right people can hear the right message. Don't worry when you're wearied. Look for someone who's waiting by the well. So he plops himself down, and he's wearied. It's noon, and all of a sudden, here comes the woman. As a side note, my, my great-grandfather, I, I cannot wait to get to this particular well because my great-grandfather did something that I'm super jealous of. He brought back from the Holy Land these slides, and I mean, it was like 100 pictures right in a row, but it looked like he was trying to do a stop motion where he was sitting on every single rock that was around this well. And we thought, okay, he's just a crazy old man. He didn't know how the slide camera worked. You know, what's happening? You know, did they think that the lens was covered or whatever? And so I asked him, you know, I was like eight years old. Hey, Papa, why do you have the same picture a hundred times? He goes, because did you know I sat in the exact spot that Jesus sat? He's like, I sat on every single rock. There's no way I could have missed it. Like, he sat all the way around. And if you don't believe I'm going to do the same thing, you are mistaken. I'm going to sit exactly where Jesus sat. So Jesus plops himself down, and, and, and he's tired. But all of a sudden, the woman becomes coming. It says the sixth hour. Their day began around 6 a.m., so we're talking about noon. We're talking about the middle of the day right here. And a woman from Samaria comes to draw water. Now, this is not unusual, the action that she's performing, because this is a woman's job in this culture. Uh, the men went and sweat in the field. The women went to draw water from the well. In fact, um, this would have been probably a part of the day or an action that many ladies would have looked forward to, because the well would have been a gathering place or a meeting place where they would have arrived to accomplish the same purpose at the same time. But typically, the women show up at the well around dusk. They're going to come when it's not as hot. They're going to come when they're going to be able to carry this massive vessel from the well back to their home and, and it not strain them all that much. And so we have to ask the question, why? Why is this woman coming in the heat of the day? Well, first of all, because she's thirsty. She's coming to the well because she needs water. She's coming to the well because she cannot cook, clean, wash, or drink unless she comes to this place. She's here at the well because there is an actual physical need in her body that she cannot solve unless she comes to this place. But she's coming to the well in the middle of the day when no one else is likely to be there because she's an outcast. She's an outcast of society. No one wants to be around her. She's been marked it would have been public knowledge if we could borrow from like Nathaniel Hawthorne for a minute if you had to read this book in high school, The Scarlet Letter. She was, she was that lady. She was the lady that everyone would have pointed at and said, oh, we know who you are. You're the lady that's been married five times and now she's living with her boyfriend. Everyone in the town would have known exactly who she was and what she was guilty of. So she comes to the well when she's unlikely to encounter anybody because a lot of times when people are going through something, they try to avoid the church. They try to avoid other people. 
And, and listen, can I tell you, and, and I shared this a couple weeks ago, trying to avoid the church when you're going through something makes about as much sense as avoiding the hospital when your arm is broken. Like, I'll wait till it heals, and then I'll go get it checked out. That is stupid. Because this is the place where you get to encounter the presence of the Holy Spirit, but this is also a group of people that are going to do life with you, and they're going to call out your sin, but they're also going to encourage you toward righteousness. It's called rehab, and you need it. The Word of God is the medication that, that you're going to need. So, well, I'm just really going through something, so I don't think I'm going to be able to make it to church today. Okay, why don't you try that when you start to have a heart attack? Well, after I start feeling better, I'm going to go to the doctor. No, that's ridiculous. Use some common sense, people. Just, just trying to share some truth with us today. I'm coming to your house today. <clears throat> Watch what happens in verse 7. She comes to draw water, and Jesus, he said to her, Listen, you cannot skim by that. Jesus said to her. This is profound because, listen, um, Jewish men don't talk to women in public. Jewish men don't talk to women in public that they're not related to. Now, rabbis, they don't, they're not even allowed to talk to their own relatives in public. The lady that, not your wife, not your mom, not your sister, not your daughter. If you're a rabbi, you take it a step further. You don't even talk to your relatives in public. And a Jewish rabbi definitely doesn't talk to a Samaritan woman who is an outcast of society. The fact that Jesus even decides to speak to her is a miracle in and of itself because Jesus is going to prove that he transcends all of the cultural biases and all of the religious rules. He's going to talk to anybody and everybody because he came for the world, not just for the people that think they have it all together. He says to her in verse 7, give me a drink. Listen, I, we're going to preach a little bit today, but we're going to dive into this chapter and dissect it because it's important that you understand. He looks at her and he, he kind of asks a question and kind of gives a piece of instruction. It's pretty, it's pretty straightforward. He says, hey, give me a drink. No question mark. Give me a drink. Okay, listen. I love, I love the words of J.C. Ryle. He says that this right here is a gracious act of spiritual aggression. It's a gracious act of spiritual aggression. We don't often think of evangelism as an aggressive thing, but I think that's because we've got the wrong perspective. We put on the armor of God and our feet shod with the preparation of the gospel of peace. When we go to evangelize the world, we have to understand we're going to war. And so Jesus steps into her situation, and he's not real soft and real tender and real meek and real mild. He's pretty direct when he says, hey, give me a drink. He's stepping in, and he's saying, hey, I'm going to ask you, I'm going to tell you to do something. And it's going to be really important that you pay close attention. He, he's pretty aggressive in this moment as he goes to her. And he, he's chasing after her is what he's doing. But he's setting the stage, and she doesn't even know it yet. In his request, or in his statement rather, he's going to begin to expose a void that's in her life and the real thirst that maybe she doesn't even realize that she has yet. So watch what happens. He says, give me a drink. Now, his disciples had gone into the city to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him in verse 9, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? Now, 
after the reign of King Solomon back in the Old Testament, um, that's the last time that Israel is a, a united kingdom. Um, after the reign of Solomon, Israel divides into two sections, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And if, as you read through the Old Testament, there was not a single good king who ever reigned in the northern kingdom. You see that because they had no sweet tea. Um, they... You, it almost took as long for Jesus to reach the northern kingdom as it has taken Chick-fil-A to make it to the northern kingdom. There's, they've got big problems in the northern kingdom. And so one king comes in and he establishes the capital city of the northern kingdom as uh, Samaria, which eventually becomes the name for this entire region, Samaria. And around 720 B.C., uh, the Assyrians come in and they conquer and they capture uh, pretty much any Israelite of any significance. And those who are left behind begin to intermingle with other countries, which God had instructed them never to do. So they intermarry with other with other groups of people, and when they do that, they bring into their culture uh, the gods, the little g-gods from the other religions and the customs and the traditions of all of these other people. But keep in mind, they're still, you know, Israelites at this time, so they kind of create their own little religion based off the Pentateuch, so the, the books of the law, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. They kind of they kind of bring their little g-gods in and, and, and then the Old Testament and they mix it together and create their own form of Judaism. They build their own temple on one of the mountains. It's kind of like the American church. Like, I want my God, but I also want my American idol as well. And so I'm going to mix them together and, like, have my own little thing. Like, I'll build my own temple, translated into modern English. We worship at home. Okay, okay, yeah, I understand. We, we don't go to church because we just have our own Bible study. I was just reading in the Bible where he said, Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I'm so glad you all are joining us online today. Um, and if you're sick, we're, we're praying for you. And, and if you're out of town, we love you and we're glad that you're here. But if you're watching from your couch at home because you just couldn't make it today, could I just be straightforward with you even if you log off after this moment? You're in sin. No one clapped for that because everybody's like, oh, mic drop. But listen. This is where you're commanded to be. Not this place, with these people. And if you skip out on it because I was tired, you are in sin. Jesus goes to this woman and he says, hey, I know that you're in your own little religion over here. I know that y'all have created your own kind of thing. And the, the Orthodox Jews don't have anything to do with you because you're an idolatrous, half-breed sort of a people that they're really uh, uh, against. But, but, but listen, I came here today to, to talk with you. I came here today to meet with you. I came here today so that you could see something that, that only I can do. And so she says, well, how in the world are you a Jew talking to me, a woman from Samaria? That, it's, not, it's not cultural. It's not religious as far as you're concerned. And then John puts in parentheses right here something um, profound. He says, for Jews have no dealings with the Samaritans. If we were to take that and really stretch it out and translate it into modern vernacular, it would literally be translated, um, they don't use the same utensils. In other words, they didn't drink from the same cup. They didn't touch the same things. If you used a towel as a Samaritan, I as a Jew could not use the same towel because you touched it and you're unclean. You remember this maybe in the, in the 60s? 
two separate drinking fountains, all these different things. And Jesus is about to demonstrate that that is not of God ever at all. She says, you Jews, you have no dealings with us. You don't use the same cups. You don't use the same tinsels. If we touch something, you don't even touch it because you're... You're better than us. At least that's what you keep telling us anyway. You, you, you have no dealings with us. But listen, in verse number 10, Jesus answered her. In other words, but the gospel breaks down every barrier because God doesn't care about your flavor, sin, or your color skin. All he sees is a soul that's in need of a savior. He didn't care about all those things. He just cares about you. Every single word and line in this book is about the gospel. And Jesus demonstrates, Jesus is the gospel. He proves the gospel. And he goes, hey, listen, if you refuse to be around somebody because they look different than you, that is not of God. The gospel is for everyone, every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every political party, every social status. God says the gospel is the great equalizer. And I came for everyone, not just white people, not just black people, not just yellow people. I came for them all. Jesus said that the world would know you were his disciples by how you loved one another. He says that you would prove what God was doing in you by what you did on the outside for other people. I want you to get this. I want you to understand this. If your love doesn't show, it's because in you God does not grow. Those who love Jesus Christ are actively serving and loving everyone around them. That's how you prove what God has done in you. And if you're one of those old nasty people, and listen, let me just call it what it is. It is if you're one of those southern racists or if you're one of those people that looks down on people who don't have the same money or the same clothes or go to the same places in you, you don't have Jesus because the gospel is the great equalizer. In this we see God's sovereign plan for the free will of men because here's what he says to her. He says, if you knew the gift of God, if you only knew He says, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. He says, if you knew the gift, if you knew the gift and if you knew who, well, then you'd ask what to do. If you knew who was talking to you, if you only knew what it was that was available to you, you would be asking me to give you a drink. In other words, your eternity will be determined by whether or not you ask for the gift. Your eternity will be determined by whether or not you ask for the gift. In other words, you have not because you ask not. Those who do not have the Holy Spirit do not have the Holy Spirit because they've never asked for the Holy Spirit. God is a gentleman, and he does not go where he is not invited, and he does not stay where he is not welcome. Listen. Listen. Everyone will stand before a judgment seat one day and will answer for whether or not they asked for God's free gift of salvation that is available to everyone. And to my friends that I love dearly who believe that God created some people to go to heaven and God created some people to go to hell, could I give to you the words of Jesus for a minute where he said, if you knew then you would ask what to do. My gift is available to everyone. 
can I ask you a question? You're, you're here today, and many of you are here because you would profess a relationship with Jesus Christ. How can someone ask for something that they don't know about? How can they know someone that they've never been introduced to? Do you see evangelism at work right here? Jesus is demonstrating what a passionate and what a graceful, aggressive form of evangelism looks like. Jennifer White is an aggressive evangelist when it comes to the end of the service. And I rely on her greatly. Because I want to get to meet and to talk to every first-time guest that we have and, and be able to get to know them and give them a gift and all of those things. But sometimes I don't know who's brand new and who's not. And so she will go and grab somebody and bring them over, kicking and screaming if she has to. And she will say, Pastor John, meet my friend Will. Will, this is Pastor... And she makes the introduction. Had she not made that introduction, I probably would have missed Will. Okay? I don't know. Is, Will, is there a Will in here? I don't know. Um, she, she makes that introduction. The only way that I'm going to know who that is is if someone makes the introduction. The only way that I'm going to know that they're brand new is if somebody says, Hey, this is my friend who's brand new. Listen, the only way for the world to know who Jesus Christ is is for you to say, Hey, meet my friend Jesus change my life forever. Let me introduce him to you. Whether or not they get to know him after that is up to them. But listen, it's up to you to introduce Jesus Christ to the world. That is part of the Great Commission. It's not the great suggestion. It's not just a great idea. It's the great commandment. It's the Great Commission. Go into all the world and preach the gospel. What does that mean? I'm introducing the world to my friend Jesus. It's as plain and simple as that. He says, if you only knew the gift that was available to you. The woman said in verse 11, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. I, I want you to see something. Every time this woman opens up her mouth and she is going to say something. Let's see, one, two, three, four, five, six different times through this passage. Every time she opens up her mouth, um, she has a hard time responding to the questions that Jesus asks or continuing in the thread of conversation that Jesus starts. She always wants to start a new conversation. I don't know who I'm speaking to in the room today, but maybe you're married to someone who all they ever want to do is change the subject. I, I don't know. Um, but here, here she is, and every time Jesus says something, she goes, well, let me talk about something else because you're starting to get a little close to home for a second. He says, if you only knew that the gift that was available to you, you'd be asking me for a drink. And she goes, hey, uh, whatever. Um, you don't have anything to draw with. You're the one with the problem. Watch what happens in verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I'll not be thirsty or have to come here and draw water. So like Jesus begins to address the internal. And every time he addresses the internal, she tries to bring it back to the external. So back in the previous verses, he says, if you knew who was standing in front of you, and she goes, but you don't have anything to drink. Are you greater than our father Jacob and, and who gave us this well? And he says, well, I, I, could, I could give you living water, and the one who drinks from my living water will never thirst again. And all of a sudden, she goes, hold up a second. Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here again. Interesting. She wants the water, but notice what she doesn't want. 
Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come where? I don't want to have to come here. I do not want to be here right now. I want Jesus, this, water, this living water you're talking about that will make me not be thirsty, I would really like to have it. Because if you gave me that, then I would never have to come back to this well. Number one, I'm a Samaritan woman, and I've got a journey to number two. I'm an outcast of society because I've been married five times, and I'm living with somebody, and everybody knows that I'm an adulteress. I have a bad reputation. So I can't come here when all the other women are here because all they ever do is talk about me, and I feel really awkward. And so I don't want to do that. So if you – and listen – um, his, history shows us that there are at least two or three wells that are closer to where she lives than the well that she's going to right here. She is going out of her way to avoid coming into contact with anybody. Why? Because she feels broken and nasty and judged on the inside. I'm going to go out of my way to avoid anybody who knows what I'm about or who knows what I'm up to or who knows what I've done because I'm scared that they're going to point their finger at me and just try and shove truth down my throat. And I just, I can't help what I've done. I can't help where I've been. And I really don't even know, like, if she had a theme song, it'd be, I still haven't found what I'm looking for. Husband number five, and this dude, she's not even going to marry him because she's like, why invest in a, in a divorce? I mean, why do that? And, and Jesus says, go call your husband and come where? Interesting. He said, go call your husband and come. Now, she had just said, I really want this living water that you've got because if I'm never thirsty, I never have to come back to the well, and that would be fantastic. I don't want to come here. And Jesus says, hey, go call your husband and come back here. Where? Here. But Jesus, you know that like the day is moving on. People are going to start showing up here. And I feel really vulnerable when I'm here. And Jesus says, I know. Why don't you come here? Jesus, I, I don't want to go here. That was the whole point of wanting this living water. I, I want it so that I don't have to come to this well. And Jesus goes, here's what I want you to do. I want you to go call your husband and I want you to come here. She addresses the external fruit of an internal root. I'm thirsty, and I want water, but I don't want the well. And watch what Jesus says. Go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband. For you've had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Jesus sandwiches a truth in between two Jewishly sarcastic statements. Jesus was brilliant. He says, go call your husband. She goes, ha, I don't have a husband. That's true. But here's what devious people do. Here's what sinful people do. Here's what sociopaths do. I'm not going to lie because that would be too risky. A lie could be quickly discovered, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to use truth to tell a lie. It was true that she didn't have a husband, but she had five husbands and was currently living in an adulterous relationship that God calls sin. And Jesus goes, you're right. <laughs> it is true 
And before we get too upset with Jesus, because here's what the world does. When you start to call out people's sin, the world, and a lot of times even church people will look at you and they'll go, no, no, don't do that. That's not compassionate. That's not gracious. Jesus calls out her sin out loud. Go call your husband. I don't have a husband. You're right. You've had five. And you've got a big problem right now. And we would go, don't do that. That's not loving. That's not whatever. Listen, here's what the Holy Spirit does. Here's what Jesus does. He will call out sin, not just for the sake of exposing sin, but for the sake of exposing a thirst and an appetite that is within you that only he can satisfy. And that's what he's doing right here. He's calling out the sin so that she can see her thirst is more than just a thirst for water. She's thirsting for something deeper. If she wasn't trying to fill a void like pouring water into a cup with holes in it, she wouldn't be on man number six. She's thirsty, but she doesn't even know to what extent yet. I read this week that an animal will chew off its leg to escape a trap. I have seen this week that people will do that too. He says, what you're saying is right. And watch what she says. The woman said to him in verse 19, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. You see what she did there? She changed the subject again. Jesus said, you've got a sin problem. You've got a heart problem. And she goes, Yeah, what do you think about where people ought to worship? You've got a sin problem. Hey, what about racism? Huh? Have you ever talked to somebody that did that? You start to share Jesus with them and they go, Hey, what about gay rights? Hey, listen, this is what the Bible says. Hey, while we're talking about that, what do you think about this over here? She's trying to change the subject because Jesus is starting to touch on her heart and she's going, hold up, hold up. Let's talk about a pop culture thing. Let's talk about something that's external because you're hitting a little close to home and I don't want to talk about that. But Jesus is gracious. He doesn't keep going back to, hey, but you're a sinner. You're a sinner. You're a sinner. He he humors her and he continues on and he he keeps bringing it back to the heart of the matter though. Here's what he says. He says, "Um, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. He goes, hey, you got a problem again because you're a Samaritan and you don't even know what you're worshiping. At least those Jews know what they're worshiping. And here's what he says. The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. In spirit and in truth. In other words, there's only one flavor of worship that the Father cares about. It's worship that is done in spirit and in truth. So when we're talking about worship through music, it could be worship through music with drums and guitars. It could be worship through music with piano and organ. God does not have a favorite flavor. If it's Holy Ghost filled and filled with truth, He likes it. He doesn't care what genre it is okay when we talk about worship through preaching and the worship of listening to the word of God God doesn't care if the pastor is in a suit and tie or if he's wearing a t-shirt and some jeans God does care if preachers wear flip-flops nobody ought to be doing that just 
it's in the New Living Translation, but it's, it's there. Don't do that. But anyway, God doesn't care if he's in a suit or if he's in sandals or whatever. God doesn't care. What he cares about is that the Holy Spirit is in it and that it's filled with truth. And you can't have truth without the Holy Spirit. And without the Holy Spirit, you can't have truth. And if it's true, the Holy Spirit's going to be filled with it. You get what I'm saying? Only one flavor of worship that God likes, and that's it. He's not talking about the labels that you can give it as human beings, okay? Well, I didn't enjoy the flavor of worship today. Cool. We weren't here to worship you. I didn't really like what the pastor was wearing. Well, I didn't buy these clothes for you. I bought it because I liked it. Listen, God doesn't, I don't like what some of y'all are wearing, but whatever. You didn't hear me say anything. I didn't like that. That's okay. I don't like broccoli, but I eat it because it's good for me. Maybe you should come and experience something. And you know what? The more that you start to experience the things that are good for you, the more you'll start to develop an appetite for it. People started telling me that when it came to salad. You're going to like salad one day. And I said, that's of the devil. I like it now. You know why? Because when your body starts getting the good stuff, it starts craving the good stuff. And the reason why you struggle to enjoy different flavors of worship is because you're not spiritually mature. All you want is candy and you don't want the steak. He says, the hour is now here. When those who worship the Father must worship Him in spirit and in truth. God is a spirit. Those who worship Him must, there's that word again, worship Him in spirit and in truth. And the woman said to Him, Well, I know that the Messiah is coming. He who is called Christ. And when He comes, He'll tell us all things. And Jesus said to her, I who speak with you am He. Ha. This is amazing. Because Jesus just said, hey, it's not about where you worship, it's about who you worship. The hour is now here when those who worship must worship in spirit and in truth. And then he says, I am the Christ. I am the Messiah. You are here to worship me. And this is the very first time that Jesus identifies himself as the Christ. It's the very first time that he does that. Now, that might not mean a whole lot to you through your American lens, but if we could go to a Hebrew lens just for a moment, the first time Jesus identifies himself as the Christ is to a Samaritan adulterous woman. What an indictment on all of the Jews who would be reading this letter from John years and years later. That John would be intentional to pen the words, Jesus took the news first to an outcast of society. He didn't give it to a Jewish religious leader first. He didn't give it to a politician. He didn't give it to a rich person first. He went to the woman at the well first to let her know that he was the Christ. He said, I'm here to give this to the lowest of the low. Now get this, get this. John chapter 20, verse 31. John is nearing death. He's penning this letter. Most likely, he's he's actually speaking this out loud because of the Greek that it's written in. It would have been beyond John's level of education. He's speaking this, and someone is transcribing it for him as he's old, and he's, he's saying these things before uh, he's about to die. John chapter 20, verse 31 says this. These things are written. What things? The book of John, the letter that John writes. These things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John is finishing up his letter now where he has told all of these stories, like the one we're reading now, and he says, 
I chose these stories and I shared them with you for a purpose. The reason that all of these things are written here is so that you might believe that Jesus is God. That Jesus is the Christ and that by believing that Jesus is who he said he was, you can have life and the only way to have life is in his name. In other words, and let me talk to the religious people and let me talk to the people who grew up in the church of the South for a second because I'm one of them. I've been guilty of this too. Listen, understand, I love this book. I love it. But this book is not the foundation for my faith. I do not believe the Bible because the Bible tells me so. And the faith of the next generation is at stake. Because for the last couple generations we have said, Thus saith the word of God and that settles it. And that's true. But there's more to the story. And the next generation is asking questions. Why do you believe the Bible? And we've said, because the Bible tells me so. Why does the Bible tell you so? And what makes it the authority? And most of us have no clue. And this generation has something that you didn't grow up with. They have the internet. They have access to every atheist, every scientist, every philosopher, and every person who ever wrote a convincing article or blog or made a video about why this is not the word of God. And listen, most of us couldn't stand a chance against some of those highly intelligent and educated but ignorant people. This book is not the foundation for my faith. I am not going to heaven Simply because I believe this book. I do not live for Jesus Christ simply because I believe this book. And I know that a lot of people are getting uncomfortable right now, but let me explain something to you. John writes this letter, not even probably knowing that this letter would be included in what we would have called the Bible today. He's writing it because the Holy Spirit told him to. He's writing as the Holy Spirit speaks to him. So as the Holy Spirit reminds John of things in his old age, he's writing them down just like the Apostle Paul did, just like the other gospel writers did and he gets to the end of his letter and he says I want you to understand as I'm signing my name to this I'm writing this on purpose so that you'll believe that Jesus is who he says he is and that you can have life through his name see listen you can argue against the Bible all day long in fact if you have a doctorate in some sort of science you could probably come against me just a regular preacher and argue about Noah's Ark all day long now listen I I know enough to be pretty good in a fight, but not enough to beat some of these guys who are Harvard, Harvard professors and all of those things. But listen, you can try and dismantle the story of Noah's Ark and it's not going to dismantle my faith. You can dismantle anything written in the book of Genesis, Exodus, or all the way through the Old Testament. You can talk about the things that don't make sense to you all day long, and you will not dismantle my faith. Why? Because my faith is not in this book. My faith is in that there was a man named Jesus who predicted his own death and resurrection, and he actually pulled it off. And anybody who can do that, I'm going to believe anything they have to say. Uh, I love Levi Lusco shared this week. He pointed out that the odds of one man fulfilling 
even just one of the prophecies, and Jesus fulfilled dozens of prophecies with his life. But the likelihood of one man fulfilling even one of the Old Testament prophecies is as likely as finding a marked nickel that had been dropped from a helicopter onto the state of Texas that was piled a foot high with nickels. That's just one. Jesus fulfilled dozens and dozens and dozens. Jesus was born in the exact city that someone said hundreds of years before he was born that he would be born in. There were some men who brought some gifts to him, the exact gifts that it was predicted hundreds of years before those men were ever born that they would bring to him. There was a star in the sky. How did those wise men, those magi, know where Jesus was going to be because of the star that was written about hundreds or even thousands of years before it ever even showed up? I'm, I'm just giving you three of them right there. Jesus was born in the exact spot. He did all of the exact things. He said all of the right things. He fulfilled things from the book of Genesis all the way to the book of Psalms. But most of all, he said, hey, someone's going to kill me. I'm going to die. After three days and three nights, I'm going to rise from the grave. And they said, we're not so sure that you could do that. And then when they saw him, not just the 12 radical followers, but hundreds of people saw him with their own eyes. Gospel writers and then historians who haven't written a page of the word of God said, we saw him and anyone who could predict their own death and their own resurrection and pull it off, they would have to be God. Mohammed didn't do it. I can take you to where he's buried. Buddha didn't do it. I can take you to where his statue is up in Hopkinsville. None of the Hindu gods have done it. They're all made out of wood and gold and all kinds of whatever. But my God, I can take you at the end of the month of May to the place where he was buried. And guess what? Nobody there because nobody's there. He said, I will die and I will rise. And he did it. And people saw him. And John says, because I saw him, I know that all of these other things are true. Why take the time to write about an insignificant woman, a woman at the well, a Samaritan woman whose name we don't even know? Here's the reason why. Because he could demonstrate the way that Jesus works. This woman didn't go seeking Jesus. Jesus sought her. Why? Because he loved her. He chased her down. Why? Because he loved her. And he served her living water that day. Why? Because she asked for it. He sought her and he served her and he satisfied her thirst forever. How? With living water. See, she stopped going to the well of men for a drink that would leave her wanting. Rather, she became a well when she allowed Jesus to make her well. And if you would allow Jesus to make you well, you would become a well. The Bible says that living water would be springing up or welling up to eternal life. We're talking about a never-ending well. We're talking about the Holy Spirit inside you. And if you would let him make you well, he'll make you a well, and you'll never have to go to any of the wells of men to satisfy your thirst ever again. So what do we do? What what are the instructions that he gives? What's he demonstrating here? First of all, you can be real. He says, go call your husband. In other words, let's just call it it what it is. Let's just call sin, sin. 
You want to be well? You've probably heard it on TV. Admitting the problem is half the battle, and it is. You want to be well? It's time to admit that you've got a problem. It's a sin problem, and you've got it. You've got it bad. Call it what it is. Go call your husband. Let's talk about the fact that you're a sinner. On the outside, we can all see it. Everybody knows what you've done. Everybody knows where you've been. Everybody knows. I mean, we're just talking about the stuff that's on the outside. But he says, you, you can be real about that with me. This is, no, this is a judgment-free zone. Um, but you can be known. He says, go call your husband. Go call your sin and come here to the place of vulnerability, the place of pain, to the pit that you've been trying to fill, like pouring water into a cup with holes in it. You can be known by me, and I will satisfy that thirst forever. You can be real. You can be known. And ultimately, you will never have to guess or wonder if you're loved ever again. You can know. You can know. In the movie that this series has kind of grown from, there's a question, an exchange going back and forth between a man and a woman. He says, what if we rewrite the stars and and say that you were made to be mine? Nothing could keep us apart, and you're the one that was meant to be found. You're the one I was meant to find. But it's up to you, and it's up to me, but no one can say what we're meant to be. And maybe you're in the room today and you say, it's written in the stars that I'm just going to be jacked up and messed up for the rest of my life. I mean, I think about the problems that I've encountered. I think about my mess. I think about my situations. And you're like that girl in the movie. You're like the girl here in the story. That every time Jesus starts touching on something inside your heart, you go, hold up, hold up, hold up. Let's talk about something else. And he goes, hey, listen. I made the stars so I can rewrite them. Nothing can keep me from you and nothing can keep you from me if you would ask for a drink. If you only knew the gift that was available to you. And so today, if you didn't know before, you know now. And you won't be able to walk out of this room ignorant of the fact that Jesus came and he died and he rose again for you. What would cause men like John and Matthew and Mark and Luke and Paul and all of the hundreds and thousands of others through the New Testament, what would cause them to assemble and to worship and to evangelize their communities? What in the world would lead them to do that? They didn't have the Bible to go and read. What would cause them to dedicate their lives and ultimately sacrifice their lives if they didn't have the Bible? Here's what it was they saw him he did what he said he would do therefore he is who he says that he was because there's only one person able to predict their own death and resurrection and actually pull it off and that's God that's Jesus and when they saw him he changed their lives forever and they my friend are writing to you to say we saw him and you can too You can too. You see, this woman, she was feeling insignificant and she was feeling broken and she was feeling battered and all of those things. 
So she did her best to avoid any situation where she might feel the slightest bit uncomfortable. She wanted water, but she didn't want the well. But that day, Jesus gave her his water and he made her a well. Springing up inside of her, he gave her everlasting life. You know what happens when she encounters that? Here's what John 4 says in verse 39. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. The disciples show up and keep asking Jesus, you want some food, you want some food, you want some food? And he's going, no, 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 that's not what I'm here for. I'm here for her. And it says that they didn't even, they didn't even ask him what he was doing with her. They probably talked about it, but they, they didn't go try to understand it. Here's how I can see the spiritual maturity of a believer today. You want to know someone who's spiritually immature? All they care about is food or functions, just things. They're even good things, churchy things. But you want to see someone who's spiritually mature, someone who's radically been changed? See, the disciples were worried about food, and she was worried about her friends. She went into the town of Sychar. She ran all the way back. It says she left her pot there. She ran all the way back. Now, like politically or whatever, she didn't have the right to go talk to really hardly anybody. Definitely not men. But there were six men that she had the right to talk to. Five ex-husbands and one live-in boyfriend. Now put yourself in their shoes for a moment if someone comes and says, hey, come see a man who's told me everything I've ever done. He knows about you too those men begin to gather the other men of the city. The women begin to assemble and this caravan of people journeys to the well to meet this man who told her everything. And many believed because of the testimony of that woman. And as they stayed to hear what Jesus had to say, they said in verse 41, it's no longer because of what you said that we believe for we've heard ourselves and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. When Jesus changed her forever, all she could do was say, look what Jesus did. Look what he did. Look what Jesus did.